Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking at 25 and 26 today, but we wanted to read all of 21 through 26. As we said, these could be some of the six most important verses in all of the Bible. And as a way of reminder, we looked at, uh, we've looked over the last few weeks again at verses 21 through 24, and we said that the main point there in the gospel as God has ordained and designed it is such that sinners could be declared righteous, that is justified, that, that they could be reconciled to a holy God. That, that's the issue. God is righteous in our sinfulness. We lack righteousness. And so how do the two of those things come together? How can God be rightly reconciled to a people who are unrighteous? And we looked at we looked at that, that God has has offered Jesus Christ as a completely satisfactory offering that second Corinthians five says God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf that we might become the what the righteousness of God. Jesus gets our sin, deals with our sin, we get his righteousness and we looked at what that meant and the reality and we continue to see that even this morning in, in verses 25 and 26. And we looked at the fact that, that this justification by God is offered as a gift, that it is offered freely. Again, this is unmerited favor. Grace is unmerited favor. He, he says in verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There was nothing in us that mandated that God act. Okay, this is totally by grace. And we talked about that. There was nothing in us that said, oh, I've got to do that. God freely did. There was nothing that warranted it. There was nothing that initiated it. This was totally initiated at the, at the will, the free will of God. God did this. And, and we saw through the Bible that God is sovereignly free to give his mercy however he chooses. Romans 9 makes that clear. The Lord will have mercy on whom he has mercy. It's his, it's his freely to give. And, and we used an illustration from, a, from an incident that happened um, just north of here at, at, the, at the Waffle House where somebody goes in and, and, and is paying for, for people's meals at his free will, at his own goodness and kindness, and he doesn't pay for one person's, and they killed him. It, it was his, it, he was no less generous if he would have walked by that Waffle House and done nothing. Yet that simply displayed his generosity. It displayed his character. Nobody in that Waffle House could have made a claim on his grace. And just like that person felt like they deserved his grace and could act accordingly, we, we selfishly, even as a part of our sinfulness, we think we deserve something from God. We believe we're worthy. And, that, and, and if we're not careful, we make God to be unrighteous for not doing what we think He should do. For not acting according to our plans. There was nothing in us that warranted, deserved, or could have demanded that God save us. What, what Paul has made clear through Romans 1.18 through 3.20, we were incapable of doing anything to reconcile this relationship with God on our own, to deal with our sinfulness on our own. We could not. God had to take the initiative, and that's exactly what he did. God took the initiative. 
And we began to look last week at how this grace of God fuels everything about our lives. And we're going to see that even today, but we're going to see that in the rest of Romans, especially Romans 12 through 16. Again, in chapter 12, Paul makes a very clear uh, transition and a very a heavy application of what this gospel means for our lives. And the very first thing he says is that the only reasonable, what he says is the only reasonable response to the gospel is to offer your lives as a living sacrifice to this God who offered his son as a sacrifice. The only, that's the only reasonable response. Anything short of that is unreasonable. Anything short of us offering our lives for this gospel, it falls short. And it's all based, again, he says, thereby I urge you, by the mercies of God. When you're looking at them, even today what we see, we're going to look at the mercies of God here. And I'm going to ask some tough questions when we're done to follow up. Because this is not something to simply to, to attest to and then it has no impact on our lives. God's grace fuels everything about our lives. The reason behind everything in our lives. Even in Romans 12, 18 and 19, where Paul's going to talk about forgiving your enemies, that only makes sense when you realize that that's exactly what God has done for you in the gospel. He forgave his enemies. Therefore, it makes total sense if God is going to forgive you as an enemy, if you're going to receive that mercy. Therefore, doesn't it make complete sense that you and you would then offer that same mercy to others? That's the point. And the point is such that this, that who gets the praise for that? God gets the praise for that. He's the one doing it in us. And, and the point behind all of this, you'll see it there on your handout, the main point is, is this, God's primary purpose in the gospel. Why is the gospel the way it is? Why, it has, been, why has it been revealed, authored, structured? What, what's the main reason behind everything? And it's God's righteousness. You could, you could put in there God's glory if you wanted. That, that God would be just, that God would be declared righteous, and that he could justify the unrighteous, that he could do this rightly. That, that in our salvation, God would be declared righteous, and that he could rightly declare sinners righteous. And, and, and this becomes some very, very somewhat technical language. Because, again, God, listen, in saving you, in saving me, God's righteousness is at stake. Please grasp this. It's probably not, probably, it's probably going to strike some of us as odd that, that you mean I'm not the preeminent purpose in the gospel? No, you're not the preeminent purpose. That runs totally contrary to our culture. Everywhere we turn, we, we want to make the sinner. You know, we want to, as somebody, as one author said this week, we want to glorify the worm. You know? Scripture says otherwise. Scripture declares otherwise. The, the most basic, again, the issue behind the gospel that has got to be dealt with carefully is God's righteousness. God has to act in a way where he is declared righteous, where it is consistent with his character, and so that he can justify the one who has faith in God, i.e. declare them to be righteous. 
How can a holy and righteous God rightly forgive sinners without them paying the penalty of their sin on their own? That's the issue. And at the same time, how can God do this and maintain his own faithfulness to himself, but also what the law requires? And, and li listen to me. Uh, again, we're you're going to have to think a little bit this morning probably, but listen to Proverbs 17, 15. The writer of Proverbs says this, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Think, think, think through this for just a moment. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are an abomination to the Lord. Isn't that exactly what God does in the gospel? God has made a way that he could justify the wicked, that is you and me as the sinner. And in doing so, he condemned righteous Jesus Christ. How did he do that? How can he do that without contradicting himself? Without being unrighteous? You, you look at Ezekiel 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And yet in Christ he forgives sin. Separates it as far as the east is from the west. Listen, in the gospel, God is justifying the wicked and he is condemning the righteous, i.e. Christ. How does he do that? That's the issue. How does God rightly do that? How, how can God forgive sinners and yet maintain his righteous character? That, that's the issue. And in some ways, if we're not careful, God seems unrighteous for forgiving sinners. Unless the penalty is paid. Unless there's a willing substitute. It's very important that we understand this and grasp this. Because again, in a very real sense, in the outworking of the gospel, God's righteousness is at stake. His character is at stake. His name is on the line, if you will. His glory is at stake. If God does what he hates, if he violates his character, he ceases to be righteous. He's a hypocrite. Thus, the cross, it's primarily a, about a revelation of God's righteousness, that God cannot be accused of wrongdoing or anything unrighteous in the gospel. And how he, only he, could make a way that sinners could be totally forgiven of their sin, declared righteous, all the while God would remain righteous. That's the gospel. And you see it on your handout. God's redemption through Christ takes place at the initiative of the Father in order that God's righteousness be further revealed. All throughout verses 21 through 26, the emphasis is on God's righteousness. Apart from the law, verse 21, the righteousness of God is seen. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith. Verse 25, the righteousness of God. 26, the righteousness, a demonstration of the righteousness of God. 
This is unmerited, undeserved grace towards sinners. Christ is not seen. He's not doing something that the Father doesn't want him to do. He's not twisting the Father's arm to do something that the Father doesn't want to do. God is, God is loving, undeserving sinners. He is showing grace to undeserved sinners, yet satisfying his righteousness. Why? Because sin is being dealt with. The law demanded where there was sin, there must be death i.e. God is crucifying his son. Both must be dealt with rightly, and the gospel deals with both rightly. It is, again, a further display of God's righteousness. Whom God, again, he displayed publicly, verse 25, as a what? As a propitiation, as a satisfactory payment, as a sacrifice. And, and in many ways, verses 21 through 24 looks at the cross and the gospel and salvation somewhat from a human perspective or a human reception. God's creation has sinned. They have fallen short of the glory of God. They lack His glory. And thus they have been separated from God due to their sin. And that sin demands death. Our sin rightly warrants the wrath of God because it is, again, it's falling short. And yet he loves that creation that has sinned. And the crucifixion deals with both. In, in the cross, God pours out his wrath upon his righteous son, Jesus Christ, who dies in the place of sinners as a substitute, as a propitiation. Therefore, he satisfies the wrath of God towards sin. And yet he did it in love. Romans, I mean, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. He did. And you see it on your handout. What we have tried to make clear through this is at the cross, God's love and wrath meet. At the very same time God fulfills his justice and righteousness in Christ's death, God is at the very same time expressing a love for his creation. Even 1 John 4 says this, in this that we know love, not that we loved God, but that what? God loved us. The cross is an expression of what real love looks like. Again, no greater love has a man than this than what? He laid down his life. Where, where does that definition show? At the cross. It's an expression of God's love. It's an, it's an expression of what true love is. Go to 1 Corinthians 13. It, it meets it specifically. Neither, neither God's love nor his wrath can be denied nor compromised if we're going to fully appreciate the cross. Thus, God is seen as righteous. We receive it again. Even he says it in verse uh, 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith. How is that a gift appropriated to my life, your life, to a sinner's life? Through faith. But here in verses 25 through 26, we begin to see more of the cross and its fullness in, in a different light. Really, God's from, we start to see it from God's initiative and his reasons behind it. Not, not really from our, our vantage point, but from God's vantage point. Again, how does a holy God righteously deal with sin? Again, not that we didn't do that in verses 21 through 24, but it becomes hopefully crystal clear here in verses 25 and 26 in, in why the gospel is the way it is. 
And, and the first thing that we have to see there is on our handout that God's purpose behind the crucifixion of Christ is setting forth of a, is the setting forth of a sacrifice in order to display His righteousness. It is a display of righteousness whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Why did God do this? It is a demonstration of his righteousness. Again, God did this. Verse 25, whom God did this. His own initiative. Again, you look on your handout, the primary, the primary doer in the crucifixion of Christ is God. Not begrudgingly, not as a last resort. This wasn't, uh-oh, things have gotten out of control. I've got to come up with a secondary plan. This was planned before the foundation of the world. Acts 2.23 says, this man, Jesus Christ, handed over by the predetermined plan of God. Predetermined plan. He didn't look ahead and say, oh, these people are going to... No, no. God set this in motion. That's sovereignty. 2 Corinthians 5.19, it says, In Christ, God was. God was reconciling a lost world to himself. This is, this is, the, this is God doing this. Not a reaction, not a correction. This is according to the sovereign plan of God before the foundation of the world, says Ephesians 1. And, and what we see in the cross is that God is offering the sacrifice that his own righteousness demands. If sin is going to be forgiven, if sinners are going to be declared righteous, again, and we looked at this, how this differentiated from, from really the worldly views of the gods, of these, of these moody gods that had to be placated and, and they, they would offer up all these things to try to keep the gods on their side and it was up, to the, it was up for humans to, to just kind of placate and to, to pacify these moody gods. And yet in contrast to that, in a world which knew that, here we have the gospel which is a holy God offering the sacrifice himself on behalf of sinners. You see the difference? Do you, do you see how this gospel is totally different from all of the Gospels, God is the one offering the sacrifice on behalf of the sinner. He's not saying, hey, you muster up enough courage and strength and effort, and you do your best to try to please me. The Gospel is God saying, I'm going to offer my best to satisfy me on your behalf. So that I would be seen as righteous. Totally differentiated from every other so-called Gospel out there. Totally differentiated from every other so-called God out there. God is offering a sacrifice on behalf of the subject. Totally different gospel. And, and, and everything about this has a reference to the Old Testament and specifically what was seen as the mercy seat in the Old Testament. And it was at this mercy seat, it was upon this mercy seat that, that the, holy, the high priest would go in and he would offer the blood of the sacrifice. He would pour it out on the mercy seat. And, and if, again, if you go to Leviticus 16, you see it, it talks about the day of atonement. And the word atonement appears over and over and over throughout Leviticus 16. And it's, it's, it, God was allowing, giving them a picture of, that, of their sinfulness and how costly that was and how would Israel's sins corporately be dealt with and paid for. And once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies 
and he would, he would sacrifice a lamb, and he would pour that blood out on the mercy seat. And it was a picture of, of that, that without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sin. It was the turning away of God's wrath towards the people of Israel. And once a year, he would go in and he would sprinkle this blood on the mercy seat. But listen, only the high priest would enter in. And it was done behind a veil. Nobody else, nobody was privy or witness to what went on behind that veil. And again, over and over, Leviticus refers to this as, as a way of making atonement for the sins of the people. And the mercy seat was where that took place. And what Paul is writing here is showing us that Christ is the new covenant equivalent to what took place in the old covenant. You see it in your handout. We must view the gospel as God offering Christ as the atonement for our sins so that we can be forgiven. Again, satisfactory payment. And, and, and it speaks to why he would write here. Listen to what he, look at what he writes. Whom God displayed what? Publicly. Do you see the difference? Do you see the beauty of what he says here in contrast to what happened in the Old Testament? For all the world to see. It's displayed for all the world to see and witness. What once was hidden from public view now was publicly witnessed for all the world. That's what Paul is saying, that, that why, why Hebrews says that in Christ everything was better than the old, a better ministry, a better covenant, something for all to see, publicly displayed. L listen to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be in Hebrews a bunch today because he, he paints it clearly for us to see. In Hebrews 7, verses 18 and following, For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Do you see the point? And inasmuch as it was not without standing an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much more the also Jesus has become the guarantee of a what? A better covenant. Listen, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, Jesus is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to, want to have a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, talking about the Old Covenant, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Do you, do you see the sufficiency of what Jesus Christ offers? Even in Hebrews 8, 6, 
But now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Verse 13, when Jesus said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Everything is perfected in Christ. For all to see. In in Christ, God is once and for all turning away his wrath from sinners. He is making a once and for all offering that the Old Testament pointed to. Everything in the Old Testament was aimed at Christ. You see in Galatians 3.24 that it was a tutor to lead us to Christ. Christ is it. He is preeminent. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Not in the blood of bulls and goats. Not in the blood of other people. In his own blood. It's one, listen, it's one thing for me to offer up your child. It's another for me to offer up my child. It's one thing to take one goat out of the flock and bring him in and sacrifice him. It's another for me to die myself. That, that's what Paul is saying here. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Making a way, God was making a way once and for all so that God could justly not count the sins against anyone who professes faith in Christ. God can freely forgive them of their sin. Why? Because the penalty was rightly paid. That's why God can do this and remain and justly. That, that's what we looked at when we looked a couple weeks ago at, at propitiation, the satisfying of God's righteous demands. Because of Christ, God can rightly forgive sinners and remain righteous in doing so. This is a hugely, again, not what we tend to think about, but this is immensely important when it comes to a holy God. Again, the primary issue here is showing that God is righteous. And you see it on your handout. In the gospel, we see God doing what is consistent with his holiness and doing whatever and doing what he was never unwilling to do. This is his plan all along. Listen to Colossians 1, 19 and 20. Again, this is not some second-rate plan. This is not some overreaction. It's not some begrudging thing. It's like, wow, I've been backed into a corner. Now I've got to figure this out. No, no, this is God's plan. Listen to Colossians 1.19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. It was the Father's good pleasure to make this way. Jesus' blood, once and for all, covers, pays for, atones, propitiates our sin. Thus, we can be declared righteous. Why? Because God made the satisfactory offering. Jesus Christ, see this, He is our mercy seat. He's the once and for all offering. He's the center, He is the focal point of God's making a way for sinners to be rightly declared righteous, for their sins to be atoned for. Jesus' blood did what the blood of bulls and goats could never fully do, only that which what they pointed towards. 
it pointed towards full display of God's righteousness. Again, verse 25, God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Why? This was to demonstrate his righteousness. But, but not only does it demonstrate or display, secondly, you see God's purpose behind the crucifixion is, is to satisfy his righteousness. It demonstrates his righteousness, but it satisfies it. Again, why could we never accomplish this on our own? Why do works fall short? It's interesting because it, it, Paul says here, in the past, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Why? Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. If you look at that statement alone, you say God isn't just. He, he let them off the hook. Why? Because he, it appears that he didn't fully punish their sins. Therefore, again, God's righteousness wouldn't be fully displayed. Okay, if salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone, how could God handle this issue? How, did, how, did, how were they forgiven? And Paul again says, enter the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ satisfies God's righteousness in that it pr proves that his character is righteous. He, what he promised, he provided. What he promised, he provided. In the cross, again, God has done what he said he would do all along. Provide a way of salvation. All the way back to Genesis 3.15, what does he promise? There will come one who will bruise your heel, Satan, or you're going to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. All the way back to Genesis 3.15. And all those Old Testament sacrifices... All, all the animals that were sacrificed, they were looking in faith towards the cross. And God's character demanded it, God's character promised it, and God's character provided it in the cross. Even in Psalm 103.10, Daniel read it, but Psalm 103.10, He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. Okay, God, and God has passed over thousands of sins. He has forgiven thousands and millions of sins without the cross. How can God do that and remain righteous? And the gospel shows that. The cross shows this. I, I mean, if you think about it, who do we place at the center of everything? Who do we make everything primarily about? Say it with me. Me. Self. I mean, the, the cross is a testimony to my worth. The cross is a testimony to how much God loves me. You know, Jesus took the fall like a rose, trampled on the ground. He took the fall and he thought of me above all. We sing it. Our starting point is self. That's not the starting point here. We've fallen short. We lack God's glory. Again, even with regards to sin, what's the center point? The glory of God. You look throughout the Bible. I mean, I, I debated it, but for the sake of time, everything God did, the centrality of God was behind everything he did. And you sit here and hear God's main goal and objective in everything he does is his glory. 
even the passing over of sins previously committed. Why? To demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over, knowing that one day, again, even in our sinning, what is primarily at stake is the glory of God. And let me carefully illustrate this, because, and this may hit close to home with some, and forgive me for that, but, but I think it clearly illustrates this. Talking about the glory of God being preeminent, and I, I want to do this carefully, but think about adultery for a second. When somebody commits adultery, who do we see as the primary victim? The spouse, right? That's who we see as the primary victim. And I'm not saying that, that they're not offended. But we first and foremost think about the spouse. But think about this for a second. Who formed marriage? God did. Who formed you? God did. Who formed the other person? God did. Who said adultery was a sin? God did. Why is adultery, adultery a sin? Because God said it's a sin. You, you see the issue? Who's primary the focus here? Why is it a sin? Because it falls short of God's glory. It falls short of the intended purpose that God designed for marriage, for you. All of that, everything goes back to God's glory. Why is sin sin? Because it falls short of the glory of God. Not because it offends you and me. Again, even in Psalm 51, David, who committed adultery with Bathsheba, what did he say? Against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. Hold on, David. Didn't you sin against Bathsheba? Didn't you murder Uriah? Yes, but primarily David sinned against God. The issue is God's glory. And you see it on your handout. Sin is failing, sin is failing to love God's glory above all else. That's why 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it to what? The glory of God. To the praise. So when God passes over sins, uh, from our standpoint, it would appear to be unrighteous, like he's a bad judge, that they're getting away with their sin. It would appear, again, that God would be righteous. What the righteous thing to do would be, no, they deserve hell. But the word passed over here, when it's applied to legal charges, it literally means postpone. God can postpone their punishment without, comp uh, without compromising his justice. Why? Because he knew Christ was coming. And, and, and all illustrations fall short, but, but what do you do when you swipe your credit card? You're postponing a payment. That You know what? You're telling that company, I promise you the payment is coming, right? You're just postponing it, sometimes longer than others. Okay, God could forgive them of their sins. Why? Because the, he knew the payment was coming. Everything always pointed to Christ, and so that God would be seen as righteous. You see it in your handout. What Paul says here is that the offering of Christ actually satisfies and displays God's righteousness in that he postponed the full penalty due sins before the cross. Please, please see the righteousness of God here, and even in the cross. God did what he promised he would do. He didn't ignore their sins. He didn't act like they didn't happen. He didn't forgive Old Testament sins a different way. God promised something, and he did. And, and again, all of this 
again, back to Hebrews. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hold your place in Romans. We have time. Hold your place in Romans 3. Go to Hebrews 9. I want us to see the fullness of what Paul is saying here and why the gospel is the way it is and, and how the Old Testament pointed to it so clearly. In chapter 9, Paul is going to compare the old and the new. Not Paul. I don't know who wrote Hebrews. Forgive me. In Hebrews 9, the writer of Hebrews is going to say he is going to compare the old and the new. Look at verse 1. I want you to see the righteousness of God, the awesomeness of God here. Why only he would do this. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded in the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. There it is, the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second... So there's an outer layer, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. That's an interesting statement. You see that even back in Numbers. It clarifies an offering made of sins committed in ignorance. There's an interesting study there. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Do you see the pointing to Christ? How these things were tutors. But, look at verse 11. But, when Christ appeared... As a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Again, in contrast to the human priests who went over and over. For if the blood of goats and bulls and of ashes and heifers sprinkling, those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you see the whole point is to show the, greater, the greatness of Christ? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place, for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. You see the point. Those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, even dealing for those in the Old Testament. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. 
For it is never enforced while the one has made it alive. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, they took, he took the blood of the calves and of the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the one, true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Do you see how Christ is greater? But how it was built on the Old Testament? Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, would appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. All the Old Testament pointed to Christ. He's the fulfillment. He's the better. Look at Hebrews 10, 4 and 5. For it is impossible for the bulls and goats to take away the sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Again, he goes on to talk about the offerings. But again, verse 10, By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. God can forgive sins because he has given the sacrifice that was promised once and for all. God has prepared something better that was promised all along. That's why he can say, even in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. Only Christ accomplishes this. But this was God's plan all along. And he righteously kept his word. Even in the forgiveness of sinners, God is just. I hope you see that. God didn't just, you know, he didn't just sweep things under the rug. He didn't just do things willy-nilly. He did exactly what he promised he would do. And you see it on your handout. God can maintain his righteous character even in justifying guilty sinners because in Christ he paid the price. The price he promised, the price he demanded. In Christ, sin was dealt with once and for all, perfectly, completely, totally. Thus, God is seen as just, even, even in the justify, justification of sinners. That's what he says in verse 26. So that, why did all this happen? So that, verse 26 of Romans 3, God would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Why? Because the offering that had to be offered, the once and for all offering that was promised, was made. Someone had to bear God's wrath. And that somebody was Jesus. The godly for the ungodly. 
showing that God does not take sin lightly. God does not just sweep it under the rug. God doesn't do this for you and a different thing for you. God is just. And you say, okay, Chris, well, how is that applied to my life? The other word that appears throughout 21 through 26 in every single passage almost is faith. It's faith. Look, look, at, look at 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith, whom God displayed publicly, verse 25, as the propitiation in his blood through faith. Verse 26, through faith. Of the one, the just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Christ. Faith, you see it on here. Faith is the means by which the work of Christ is applied to a sinner's life. All throughout this passage, demonstration of God's righteousness received through faith. Demonstration of God's righteousness received through faith. How, how is that blood appropriated to my life, to your life, through faith? That it was my sin that Jesus Christ was crucified for. Again, apart from the law. Old Testament, saved by faith in the future offering of Christ. New Testament, saved by faith in the offering of Christ. You and I today, saved by faith looking back at the offering of Christ. It was all, the offering of Christ was always the pinnacle. Always the focal point. Everything pointed to Christ. Not two gospels, one gospel. Grace through faith. Go to Hebrews 11. Everything the Old Testament, all, all those Old Testament heroes, what did they do? By faith, by faith, by faith. So that God would be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Our sins can be completely forgiven and God can maintain his righteousness. All at his initiative. Through faith. You say, well, Chris, okay, as we close this, what does this mean? What does this mean for us today? I've done that. I've applied his sacrifice by faith. What does this mean? Here's what it means for us. We ought to be the most humble people in all the world. Believers ought to be the most humble people in all the world. I and mean, we'll look at it next week. I mean, the very first thing Paul says is, where then is boasting? You know what he's going to say? It's excluded. We, we who were apart from Christ, separated from Christ, have been reconciled to Christ at God's will, at God's initiative, at God's expense, at God's cost. Totally getting what we do not deserve. God freely chose to crucify His Son to make a way that sinners could be reconciled to Himself that reconciliation could be applied by faith. Grasp that. Apart from the law, God initiated this. God offered for you the very thing that he demanded of you. Think about that. And that's why on our shirts, we, we, the shirts that we, we're offering for us as a church to wear and to have, that's why it says transform, unified by the gospel. We, we chose that on purpose. There, in this room, there are so many differences. There, there are millions of reasons in this room for us to lack unity. And, in, and sadly enough, we do lack unity.
But here's the deal. We, Satan is so effective at getting you and I to focus on what differentiates us more than what unites us. And we spend all our lives arguing over food and clothes and movies and music and all this other junk. I'm not saying it's irrelevant. We lose sight of the fact that what unites us is the gospel. You're not my brother, you're not my sister because we like the same music. You're you're not my brother and your sister because we share the same ideals on clothes. You're you're my brother and my sister because both of us, if you've applied Jesus' sacrifice to your life by faith, that unites us. And the problem is, is there's, there's... so much, we, we are very good takers of God's forgiveness. We're horrible at giving God's forgiveness. And I think in the body of Christ, humility, there ought to be a gospel unity that loves in spite of our differences, even in spite of our offenses. Satan wants you and I to, to, to allow our hurts and hang-ups to to become offenses to where we can't worship together and to lie to us and think we can come in here not loving one another the way we should, even maybe hating one another, not forgiving, and think we're going to worship. And God is going to be honored in that. That's the problem. And and I, I thought about this even in my own life. I mean... The, the average pastor stays somewhere for about two years. And I've thought to myself, why, why, why? And, and I, here's what I believe. It's hard to stay someplace a long time. You know why? Because you become real vulnerable. The people know that you're not perfect. Here's the challenge. Even coming up here preaching every week, there's a good chance that I've let you down. There's a good chance I've fallen short, that I've failed you in some way. I mean, I just, I don't want to pick on him. I, I remember, I, I, every time I see Gage, I think about camp in West Palm Beach. Gage Harvey, is Gage here? He knows what I'm talking about. Ultimate Frisbee. He and I are on our same team, we make it to... The championship, guess who we're playing against? The other Odessa team. Okay, so pride goes from about here to here, all right, because we're playing against ourselves. Kate Hampton scores about three touchdowns in a row on Gage, and I go up to Gage, and I'm like, I went remember the Titans on him. I was like, if he scores another touchdown on you, I'm like, Chris, you are a jerk. Frisbee? And yet this guy forgave me? His family forgave me. That, that, listen, you think you laugh about that's that. He has every reason to not. Except the, his own forgiveness gives him the reason to. Every time I see Gage, and again, this is sometimes it's harder to forgive yourself, and maybe this is my way of publicly forgive me. We've done that. But listen, all throughout this room are offenses. Are we seriously, are we seriously going to receive God's forgiveness and not give it? Starting with the people in this room? 
I mean, that's, that's the point. Because see, the, the reason why we spent so much time on verses 21 through 26 and help us understand that is because we were enemies. We deserved wrath. And God offered forgiveness at his own initiative. At his own cost. And, and if you think the world doesn't see that, Even seeing your unsaved neighbors around you through the lens of the gospel. Because the problem is this. Over time, you and I, listen, you and I think we deserve to be saved. That's the problem. We just think that we're better. We think that we merit. We think, listen, my resume, when I get to heaven, my resume is this. There's going to be two words written on it. Jesus Christ. Why, why do you get into heaven, Chris? Jesus Christ. Not Jesus Christ plus anything. It's not preached a decent sermon every now and then. Not tried to love Odessa faithfully every now and then. No, no, it's Jesus Christ. And everything we do flows out of that. My challenge for us this morning is that we would take the gospel seriously. That, that we would take the implications of receiving Christ's forgiveness seriously. That, that when we have offenses with one another, we would take that seriously. That we would take the initiative and, and go to that person. Not sitting back, not pouting, not claiming our rights, not letting it to fester. Go deal with it. I, I thought about Psalm, I've been memorizing Psalm 86.5, and it just so happens to apply here. Think about this. For you, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive. Think about that, that God stands ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness, listen, to all who call upon you. The, the question is this, is this us? Do we stand ready to forgive? Do we abound in loving kindness toward one another? Are we free to offer others what we've been given? Can, can we truly as a people wear these shirts? And by the way, if you don't have a shirt, you can see me afterwards. If you don't even know what we're talking about, see me afterwards. You're like, what shirt? I want to be in. If, if I was you and I didn't know, I'd be panicked right now. I was like, somebody knows something I don't know? But listen, is our unity going to be in the fact that we just hang around people who are like us and really who are loving ourselves, or is our unity really going to be in the gospel? Are we really going to allow the gospel to transform us, or are we going to hide behind the fact that we really only like people that are like us or that are likable or that can give us something in return? Because that's not Christianity. That's not, again, you and I are really good at selfish mercy. And yet the gospel is sacrificial mercy. It's loving people who can offer nothing. God is loving people and you and I who offer him nothing. Are, are we going to really, are we going to let the grace of God through the gospel dictate our lives? 
Are we going to allow it to inform our offenses, inform our, our hurts? And are we going to allow the gospel, the grace of God to drive us? Or are we going to let our own sins and the sins of one another? Because listen, I promise you this. Your sin against me will never parallel my sin against God. And yet he forgave me in Christ. Why do I say it that way? Because it makes no sense to, be, to, be, to receive a 500 denarii forgiveness and to not forgive a 10 denarii forgiveness. Go to the Gospels. Don't, don't be the Matthew 18. Don't receive the 500 denarii forgiveness and then hold somebody and throw them in jail over the 5 denarii. Because listen... I'm not trying to minimize your hurts and offenses. I'm minimizing them in view of the grace that you've received for your own sin. And I pray that we would not misrepresent the gospel in that. That we would allow this gospel to change everything about us. That it truly would be where our unity is found, not in our common likes, not in our common dislikes, not in our clothing, not in our parenting styles. Those are great. Our unity is in the gospel, that we are sinners in need of mercy, and God has offered that mercy through the gospel. And, and again, gospel plus zero. That we would see ourselves as beggars, having been rescued. That we'd crucify our flesh and our, our entitlement and our sense that, oh, you know, that we owe, we're owed something. No, you're owed wrath. And God offered you grace. I pray in our own homes that would be the case. At work, in the schools. That, that the people around us would see this gospel. That we would not be hypocrites. That we would not be takers. I was reminded of it. You know, I poke fun at our, I share our kids probably too much. I don't know. I try to be vulnerable with you guys. We're not a perfect family. And yet, you know, sometimes the hardest people to, it can be hard to live with people because you see them every day. And, you, you know, Karen knows my weaknesses. I know hers. And Bradley went to Orlando yesterday with his school. And on his own dime, get in the car and he gets something out of a bag. And on his own dime, he bought Sarah. A gift. Didn't buy himself a gift. Bought himself nothing. Spent his own money. Because he knew what his sister loved. Listen, if you have a sister, you know you have no reason to do that. <laughs> you know she didn't deserve that. And if you have a brother, you know he don't either. At his own, listen, I didn't ask, his mom and daddy didn't ask him to do that, didn't prompt him to do that. He did that on his own. Here, right here, out of this. And that's not a credit to Karen and I. That's a credit, I believe, to the gospel taking effect in his life. And, and I pray that'd be the same for us.